Good afternoon. Welcome to the Creating Structure podcast from Creating Structure Studios in Stowe, Ohio. This is our first podcast, and I'm really pleased to have Dan Adams on the show. Dan, welcome. Great. Good to be here, John. Good to have you. So the Creating Structure podcast. Oh, by the way, before we start, this is a little known fact, but this is National Professional Engineer Day. So they're expecting humans to celebrate arguably the most boring people on the planet, professional engineers. But if it weren't for us, hey, everything would fall apart. I I would have worn my pocket protector, but I left it at home. Dang, the pocket (laughs) protector. We should have done the pocket protector. That would have been great. So we would do the hug an engineer today, but we can't because of COVID rules. Yeah, fair enough. So here we are. Um, so this is the first podcast. I had a potential guest say to me, well, John, I'd be happy to be a guest, but I don't know anything about structures, so I don't think I can do it. And I said, well, maybe we'll have to consider a name change, but for now we're called Creating Structure Podcast because creating structure is about the value proposition. It's about Finding value. So that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking business and life and entrepreneurship. And I mean, we may talk about structural engineering, but this is not about that. This is about um, how we interface and communicate with the world and business and all those things. So you ready? I I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Great, great. So. Dan, why don't you introduce yourself and your background, who you are, where you come from? Sure. So Dan Adams, my background is chemical engineering, but I knew at a very early age, even when I was at college, that uh, I really wasn't cut out to uh, size heat exchangers the rest of my life. So even while I was in college, I started taking business courses and very shortly went over to the dark side and got into marketing. And uh, really in my career, it was mostly in corporate America for 29 years, doing lots of jobs like technical, marketing, strategy, business development, those sort of things. I enjoyed it, but it only lasted 29 years and I took off in a different direction after that. So that's a little bit different than a lot of entrepreneurs these days because everybody is talking about entrepreneurism. I mean, it's almost like a sport now. It's yeah. like the thing to do, but you are seasoned. You were a corporate executive for 29 years. A really late bloomer, John. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So you got a chemical engineering degree. Right. And an MBA. Yes. That's great. And you are a business founder and entrepreneur, correct? Yeah. You know, you would think after 29 years, of, this is where I need to be, but... Um, It's kind of interesting. I I had a performance review with a really wise business leader. And he said, you either need to decide to go for this certain vice president position or become a consultant. I said, become a consultant? Where did that come from? He had done a better job, I think, of understanding what I really love to do than I did. So as I started thinking about it, I thought, I think I need to start up a new business based upon new product development. And so that's what I decided to do. And we probably won't get into it here, but it's kind of an interesting story. When you want to get fired, how do you do that? (laughs) I like that. That's good. Run with that. Well, you know, I mean, you've been there 29 years. At the time, this is 15 years ago, they had some pretty nice severance packages. So I wasn't about to say I quit, you know. So I would ask my boss, could you get me fired, you know. And so he would go into meetings and they were reorganizing the office and he kept taking my name tag off the blueprint of the office and the president would put it back on, one of these things. So finally, I actually had to go to the president and say, listen, I know you're going to have to, it was a downturn, you're going to have to let some people go. I said, so you probably want people here who are you know, going to be able to handle things in a certain way. But I said, that's not what my interest is. I'm not one of those people. So thankfully, I got fired and uh, started up a new business, which is uh, essentially a training business. So, um, so I said to him, you know, I really, really want to get fired if I can. Right. So we went through a process where, you know, he would take my name off of this blueprint of where the offices are were and who was going to be in which one. That's and crazy. and the, the, the president kept putting my name back on. It was one of these things that lasted for a few months. 
And so finally I said, I better go talk to the president. And I kind of let him know what my interests were. And I knew he wasn't interested in those uh, kind of people. I was more of a long-term thinker and he didn't need short-term thinkers. I see. And so I, I basically said, that's not who I am. And so I was able to get fired. That's the good news, John. Well, Dan, you got to excel at something, right? <laughs> exactly right. And well done. <laughs> that was what? How many years ago? That was in 2004. And then I started up the business a few months later in 2005. Yeah, great time to start a business. Yeah. Dot exactly. com right. bubble burst and all that. Well, that's right. And I had about three years of running before you know we really had the economic meltdown. Right. But it was enough to get us started, thankfully. Good. So um, just as it relates to how we're... Um, just our audience and all, just give us a quick description on what AIM, your company, Advanced Industrial Marketing, AIM, yes. what it does. Yeah, so we're essentially a training company, but we have software that supports it. But it's really in the innovation space. And so what we do, most of our clients are Fortune 500. They're many times bigger than we are. And what we do is we train their engineers, chemists, marketing people, salespeople, how they can understand their own customers' needs. So we actually train them to go in and have conversations and interviews with their customers. And so as it turns out, a lot of our clients are making components like hydraulic cylinders, or they might be making polymers, but they're all B2B. So our clients are not Procter & Gamble. They're all companies that are selling to other companies or other businesses. Not direct to consumers. Not direct to consumers. And so the difference on that is, if you can picture this, imagine you made, your company made hose. And on one hand, you could interview a homeowner about their garden hose. Well, it's probably not going to be a real long conversation, right? We're not thinking about the garden hose that much. Now imagine you're going to interview a Caterpillar engineer about her hydraulic hose. Well, you, the, the level of knowledge that engineer has, the interest, because we could make her a hero at work, um, the foresight, the objectivity are really deep. So here's the cool part. Uh, whenever your, your customer is in business, there's a lot of knowledge in their world that you can reach into if you know how to access it. I actually think that applies really well to engineering services because you're in the B2B realm as well. Yeah, we're in B2B, just services, not products. Yeah, but it's the same thing. It doesn't really matter if it's a material, a component, a piece of equipment, which is an assembly of components right. and materials, or a service. What really matters is how much does that customer, the B2B customer, that professional, understand about their world that you don't? And the answer is probably a lot a in lot. the space you're in. So uh, with that, you were the first person who introduced me to the term market segmentation yeah. quite a while ago. Does market segmentation relate to what you're speaking about? It's really key, yeah. Here's the way I like to explain it. Let's imagine we make widgets, lots of different types of widgets, okay? Let's imagine our salesperson went up to the ranks and became the CEO. And the salesperson said, I have a great idea. Every single customer that walks through the door, they're going to get a special widget just for them. Now, the operations guy is going crazy because it's so inefficient, okay? Now, on the other extreme, imagine the operations guy is the CEO and goes, I got a great idea. We're going to make one widget. Everybody better darn well like that widget, right? <laughs> I've heard that. Right. So that's, good. that's going to be very efficient, but not very effective. Mm -hmm. So if we want to get to the optimum blend of efficiency and effectiveness, let's think about a market segment. Now, my definition is a cluster of customers of similar needs. So let's say we were making um, a polymer for a certain type of adhesive, and we found all the people who make that sort of adhesive. Maybe it's structural epoxy adhesive for bonding cars, okay? Well, as long as everybody is doing that job to be done, they're probably in competition with each other, and we interview those people, well, they have the same needs, so we've optimized both efficiency and effectiveness. So if a company wants to be really efficient and effective at its innovation, yeah, there might be some times they'll do one-off products for a single customer, 
But in general, they're going to go for a market segment innovation. I like it. Thank you. That's good. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about briefly before we get into the other questions is um, strategy. Yeah. So I don't want to put you on the spot, but like you're probably the most well-read person I've ever met on strategy. You've read Harvard Business Review strategy books. So one of my questions was, um, if you could describe strategy to somebody in the simplest manner possible, yeah. how would you describe strategy? Yeah, yeah. You know, strategy is a, one of those overworked words, isn't it? That uh, it, you, people pull it in to use it for their own means. Yeah. Like I've seen people say, oh, we're, we're going to lose money uh, on our pricing for this account, but it's quote-unquote strategic. Right. <laughs> so like, Lost leaders are strategic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I like to think of it in terms of strategic intent. Where is our business going? We need to develop a shared view among the leaders of our business. Typically, when we develop a strategy, the best way of doing it is to picture what we're going to become, get that shared view of what we will become. That's step one. Step two is look at where we're at today. And then step three is the gap. So it's here's where I want to go. Here's where we are today. Now, how will I get from here to there? Through the gap. Through the gap. Now, what a lot of companies do is when they put together their strategic plan, they err in that they kind of start with where they're at and they kind of shove off from their current position and they'd be much better pulling themselves to where they want to be mm-hmm. and developing that shared view. Yeah, I like that. John, if, you're, if your listeners wanted to pick up probably the best book that I've ever read on strategy, and it's really old, it's in the late 1990s, it's called Competing for the Future by Prahalad and Hamill. You, now, gave, this is, you, you recommended that book to me. I have it on my shelf. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Yeah. I knew it was a good one. This, this is going to sound a little bit um, warped. This may be where your podcast listeners turn off the crackpot, okay? But there was this a one where point. where it gets good. Yeah, exactly. Well, there's a point in time where I was in charge of strategy at our company, and I wanted to learn more. So this is kind of pre-internet. I went to the basement of the university, and I read through 30 years of Harvard Business Review magazines, and reading every article on strategy and then grading it and doing an, a, a little bit of an abstract on it. And what was interesting was... Wait, wait, the, wait. 30 years? Yeah. 30 years. Yeah, exactly. Oh, sorry, sorry. Sorry. I snoozed <laughs> off for a second there. Keep going. Yeah, this guy has too much time on his hands. Well, there was one book that was written that actually spawned four different Harvard Business Review articles. None other got anywhere close. And that was competing for the future. Mm. And in a nutshell, here's what they tell you to do. They say, to, to really be effective, you first compete for a view of what the industry will be like. So it's, it's a competition to what will this future be like. So you kind of expose yourself to scenario planning and your capabilities and all that. So you compete for a picture of what the future will be. That's number one. Then number two is you build your capabilities so you're prepared for that. And then number three, you compete for market share. Now, what most companies do is they roll right in there and they compete for market share. So is that the fire-ready aim mentality? Exactly right. And it's kind of like this. If you took a street brawler and put him in a ring with a golden gloves, well-trained boxer, you know who's going to win, right? So what a lot of companies fail to do is create that vision of the future and then build those capabilities to get there. When they do, they almost always win. That's cool. It it makes me think of Drucker's quote, execution eats strategy for breakfast. Right, exactly. That, That, you know, what's harder, execution or strategy? And he says execution. So how does execution play into strategy? Yeah, so that's that third phase. Is that, is that getting through getting, the gap? Yeah, getting between here and there. And so, you know, you don't want to create a great strategy and then put it in the top left desk drawer. You know, right. that's where the real work comes. Don't you find a lot of people do that? Like, that, is that common? They do. It's very common. But I think the reason it's common is the first exercise, creating that vision, was not very exciting for people. It was kind of like, yeah, we put it together, but it was more by rote, so it didn't really inspire not people. Not compelling. Sorry, quick break for water there. Yep. So you're saying that uh, some people put it in the desk drawer because maybe it wasn't very compelling, 
Yeah, and therefore the execution doesn't happen. If you engage people in that first step, creating a picture of what the future will look like, then that can be very motivating. And then that step of execution, we're going from here to there, that's where you break it down, who does what by when. It's a lot more exciting. And when you think about it, when you're in a corporation and you've got your performance planning, really the things you're doing ought to ultimately be linkable to that strategic plan. Yeah. So you want to include the people in that thinking and that makes it more So exciting. it has to be team participating. Exactly right. That's right. Yeah. You know, the point of transparency as an entrepreneur, as a visionary, you know, I, I can cite many times where I created what I thought was a great strategy and I look back and nobody was with me. Yeah. Do you see that as well? I do. I do. I mean, it's, um, it's a lot of work to include people, um, and especially if they don't agree with us, right? <laughs> right. So it's a lot easier Which for us. Which is better that they don't agree with us. It absolutely is. You know, the, there's that saying, two heads are better than one, but not right. if both heads are the same, right? Right, exactly. So like we that. need some diversity. In fact, there's interesting research on this. I won't go off too much on this, but, you know, when you want to make some really good decisions... You want to get a number of people involved, and obviously, if they have a lot of expertise, that's really good. But what they found is just as important is their, as their expertise is their diversity in perspective and background and so forth. And I mean, even mathematically, they've been able to show that this is the case. So you really want people who think differently. I think we think about diversity as we should in terms of physical diversity. That's very appropriate. But I don't think we um, relate that often to cognitive, cognitive diversity. diversity. And they're usually related. So like if we looked at a DISC profile, yeah. D-I-S-C dominant, yeah. it's just, you, would, you, you don't want everybody as an orchestrating conductor, right? You want different right. sectors of the DISC. Exactly. So like, like Richard and I, I say together, we almost make the perfect human being. I'm a DI, dominant yeah. influencer, yeah. and he's a supportive complier. And we're like t opposite sides of a teeter-totter, but you say you want a room of people, a group of people yeah. that cover a broad spectrum, not just from a gender point of view, but from a cognitive and Absolutely. personality. Yeah, you want them to have different mental models that they've used throughout their life. It could come from their college education, their past experience. It could be from their upbringing, hmm. the neighborhood they grew up. It could be any number of things. Mm -hmm. But the more diversity you have in that, the more powerful that decision making is going to be. Now, you have to make sure that the decision making process, I mean, if the boss's first name is Genghis, you know, and, you know <laughs> right. he's not You really may want to find a different country. <laughs> exactly, right. So, but that's really, that's where the power comes in, in all kinds of decision making, not just strategy. So, correct me if I'm wrong on this now. <clears throat> You've created a process for this, right? Is yeah, that what I, New Product Blueprinting is about? Mm -hmm. It's a process for understanding um, a B2B company's customers' business needs. Business. Yeah, so that they can develop a new product, service, business model, that sort of thing. It, it, there's quite a bit to it, but it really boils down to two fundamental steps. The first is an interview or a discussion that is di it's qualitative and it's divergent. Okay. So in that, if I were interviewing you, I'd say, well, tell me what your needs are within a certain space. You know, so maybe it's within glass curtain wall and maybe a certain type of building or something. And I'd be getting all your needs. I would be doing it maybe for the builder, for the, you know, for people installing different components, for the building owner, different mm -hmm. parts of the value chain. But the point is it's divergent. I'm getting all of your what we call outcomes. Okay. So we get all these outcomes collected. And then the second phase is I would ask you to rate those outcomes on an importance and satisfaction scale. So in other words, let's say I'm talking to you and you're the, you're the person who's um, installing the glazing and you want to be able to um, install it more rapidly. Well, how important is that on a scale of one to 10 and how satisfied are you today? And we're looking for things that are important that are not being satisfied. I see. So essentially, to, to wrap this up, what we do with the divergent phase is we avoid errors of omission. That's failing to uncover an unarticulated need. So anything goes. 
Exactly. We don't want to miss it. Bring it all out. Exactly. And then in the second phase, we're going to avoid errors of commission, which is picking the wrong things to work on. I see. Well, actually, you just did hit on probably the number one desire for every glazing subcontractor. How can I get that thing in the hole quicker? Yeah. How can I get it on the building faster? That's great. And we could spend a couple hours a day this week backing up through the supply chain and the, the decision-making supply chain and the product supply chain as to how to accomplish that. So yeah. that's, a, that's an excellent um, analogy, an excellent example, I mean. So I have one burning question to follow up on that. Did you invent the phrase new product blueprinting or was that already existing? I did. Um, is that you know, trademarked? Well, the software is called Blueprinter and that is trademarked. Okay. And the um, knowledge base is called Blue Help and that's trademarked. Okay. And the tools are called um, Blue Tools and that's trademarked, but okay. not new product blueprinting. New product blue is just a brand kind of name. Yeah, I mean, I think at the time I was putting an addition on, I, I didn't learn from your experience. I should have watched your putting an addition on your home and, and avoided it myself. That I would did. have been those sins of commission. <laughs> exactly. Where's that omission? Which one is that? It was a commission. Why in the thing. world did I do this? Yeah, and I think it was at that time and I was thinking to myself, how silly would it be? I had to learn how to frame. I got the nail gun, the two by fours, and I was thinking to myself, how silly would it be to start sticking these these uh, these sticks together, you know, putting up walls, if it ain't have a blueprint first. Right. And then it reminded me of how many companies I've seen that go in the lab and start developing a new product, or it could be a new service or whatever, and they don't really have a blueprint for what that final product should look like. And that was the that was the, the nexus of it. That long ago. Yeah, that long ago. Yeah. I love it. That's good. <laughs> so new product blueprinting market segmentation, this process can apply to services Absolutely. and products. Because I know that all, well, most companies that have products, they're delivering some form of services as well. Mm -hmm. But like a lot of our constituents, well, our constituents will be from all sides, but there will be some professional services people too. They'll be like, well, how does this apply to architecture? How does this apply to engineering? How does this apply to accounting? You know, yeah. but I, I mean, I can see the direct correlation because you're still trying to apply the same principles, right? There, there might even be more power in service, John. Really? And here's why. Um, a, lot of time, a lot of companies who have been making products for a lot of times, polymers and hydraulic cylinders and stuff, and they've been working pretty hard and thinking pretty a long time on how they can make it better. But many companies have not been as aggressive on the service part. We had a company who made a certain, I can't reveal exactly what type of product it was, but they went in there wholly expected to make a better widget. They didn't hear the customer's outcomes that required a different physical product. Instead, they heard of service needs. And so they ended up going, it was a $40 billion French company, okay? Wow. They went to their manager and said, we need to start a brand new service business and I need to be in charge of it, this guy said. And of course, you can imagine the corporate immune system kind of swarmed and tried to get rid of the foreign body because they weren't doing services like <laughs> I that, love it, you know. Yeah. But uh, but he convinced them because he had he had hard economic data from these quantitative interviews, and it's very successful. And I think one of the reasons is all the other suppliers had just been thinking about their physical product; they had not been thinking about their service. There's another advantage service providers have. And that is, if you're making a physical product, you know, you, you can't launch anything until you launch the whole product, right? The whole thing comes out all at once, yeah. okay? But if you have a service, you have the ability to keep improving it, right. test this, try this, keep right. getting it better. So I think there's a lot of potential in service improvement. Well, this is a deep, this is a deep well because, like, for example, the copy machine repair guy. Mm -hmm. He comes here and I get in a conversation with him, me being me, because I always tell my engineers and project managers, the person you want to know the most on your projects is the fabrication foreman or the glazing foreman because they're going to tell you what works and what doesn't work. And by the way, there's hardly any design professionals that actually will speak to those end applicators right. 
and actually get the feedback up the chain, right? That's right. So I talked to this copy guy, I go, so how's it going, pretty good? And like, what's the problem? He goes, you know what, this is a common problem, I see this over and over again. There's three or four things that are always wrong with these machines, and I go, wow, do they have like a, like a test feedback loop with the manufacturer? He goes, it's funny you should say that. He said, we advocated that for years and only recently they started actually bringing me and my peers, us a couple hundred service techs into the company Wow! with the engineers and the managers and the manufacturing people to give them feedback. Take it a step further, the guy that was fixing my dishwasher and my fridge, he said, yeah, we've done so much of this work. He goes, they actually bring us in and when they pilot a new product, a new assembly, they bring us out on the floor and they tell us, fix it, tell us how to fix it. We always find something that's not that's not able to get at or whatever. Wow. That is a perfect loop. Like it, That's part of what we're talking about. It's a gold mine. There's all this information, but we just don't take the bother to go there. And, right. And we see this in every industry. Some of our clients literally make sewer pipes and some literally make satellite components. And I think about everything in between. Wow. And when we go to them, they say, yeah, we've got a really special problem. We start with our solution first. We don't really know the customer's needs. Exactly. I said, I have some, I don't know if it's good news or bad news, but everybody else does the same darn thing. So pretty easy to differentiate. Exactly. To have a, here's a mental picture. Picture a catapult with these medieval guys gathered around the catapult saying, you're gonna love the next next product, whoosh. This is what we do today. We're launching it on you. We launch products at our customers, we launch services, we don't take the time to really understand what their needs are first. I love that. I love that because it's always about listening to the customer. Even if, for instance, you're writing a proposal like I'm doing right now in, in services, the proposal is the end of the process. A lot of people consider it the beginning of the process, but by the time that proposal is complete, it should be connected to the project needs, the customer needs, the customer value proposition, and there's always some unique or dominant value proposition. Oftentimes they haven't communicated, they don't really know what it is, but you can hear it if you listen long enough. Exactly, and also if you know how to probe, how to ask the right how questions. How to ask discovery questions. Exactly. There's really good questions. We developed a methodology we call what and why. So first you ask some what questions. You say, now what kind of problems are you having today? Oh, when does that happen? Could you describe that for me? Where do you usually see that? So you ask some what questions to understand what's going on. Then you ask why questions. Well, how does that impact you? You know, what, why is that a problem for you? Then you say, is there anything else I should know about that problem? And then when, they, when you're done, you go, thanks. Now, what other problems you have? And they lead you to the problems. Now, if you can do it visually with sticky notes, digitally or otherwise, that helps, but that's the process. The customer is leading the interview. So let me ask, just this is a quick divergent question. That makes sense in an existing market. But let's say I'm Steve Jobs, and yeah. I say, I'm gonna create something nobody's ever done before. Right. Or I'm Thomas Edison. I know you all are using candles, but we're gonna give you a light bulb now. Yeah. You, you think the candle's good enough, mm -hmm. but now we're gonna, is that a person who, through providence or serendipity, has stumbled onto something, or intuitively they've really been listening in some way and they don't recognize it and they think the market needs this? What's your opinion? Yeah, there's there's both. I think. I mean, there's cases where you know Dupont discovered Teflon by accident and 3M got 3M Post-it notes. Yeah, Post-it notes. But let's go back to Steve Jobs' example. So he did not do this, but he could have gone to people, and he could have said. Tell me about the things that bug you when you, when, you, when you have music you're listening to. And he might have heard things like, gosh, you know, I wish I could organize my music. Wish I could take my music with me. Wish I could share my music. Wish I could get one song at a time, right? So yeah. what we often don't think about is, even though the iPod was quite revolutionary, it was preceded by MP3, it was preceded by CD, it was preceded, going back to uh, transistor radios, right? Yeah. You know, so we often, we often confuse the solutions with the outcome. So many times a solution is just a better way of getting at the desired outcomes. I see. In fact, think about it this way. So when Michelangelo 
was showing the statue of David to, uh, to the Pope. The Pope was like, oh my goodness, how did you create a statue of David? And he said, well, it wasn't that difficult. He said, really, I just pictured David and I carved away everything that wasn't David. Interesting. So think about a job to be done. A job to be done could be listening to music. The job to be done could be glazing a building. Imagine there were perfection there. Imagine there wasn't anything else you could do to make it better. It's as good as it possibly could be. That's the statue of David. Like now, that. we don't see those, right? There's, but in some cases, you gotta take out a chisel and chop away, because there's so much problem with installing glazing, the time it takes, right? right? There might be other outcomes associated with glazing that just need a little sandpaper work. Right. What you wanna do is make sure quantitatively you assess which ones to work on. I love that thought, like, we could spend the whole session, the rest of the session, on what's on your not-to-do list. Yeah. What shouldn't be there. I remember um, a gentleman you and I know who um, used to be a head of hygienic, and he said, um, yeah, he goes, we had some really profitable product lines that we're no longer doing because they only gave us 15% margin and we got 30 to 40% on some other margin yeah. on other products. Yeah. And we were thinking, wow, it's like, what are we going to spend our resources actually doing, right? Right. I like that. I pictured everything that shouldn't be there and I started coming yeah. that way. Right now, there's probably billions of dollars being spent on products in people's labs that they shouldn't be working on. They're developing cures for no known diseases, <laughs> right? And because yeah. they haven't understood what the needs are. And They're that's true. connected to the customer. Yeah, that's right, exactly. You're always connected to the customer. Yeah. Whether it's direct to consumer or whether it's B2B, you, you gotta be connected. To the you customer. gotta be connected. But there's one more advantage for B2B, and this applies to service business like yours as well. It's half of the battle is insight. What can I learn so I can develop a better service or product? And if you're in consumer, you're done, end of story. But if you're in B2B, dealing with a relatively uh, concentrated market segment, in other yeah. words, there's not that many building owners or construction companies or whatever, which I think is the case for you. Here's the other advantage, it's called engagement. So if you go and you interview some of your customers, some of your potential clients in here, not only will you understand their needs better, but when you leave that meeting, they're gonna say, oh my goodness, that's an engineering firm I wanna work with. They were really listening to right. me. Whereas everybody else just tried to sell me what they already had. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's a great message. That's a great message. So, so you talked about the terminology for new product blueprinting and the process that you created to try to discern these things, um, kind of how it works. I want to take a little bit of a different direction sure. for a minute. So for the technical people that are listening, I'm, I'm always preaching about communication. you got to learn to communicate. Now, you started out as a chemical engineer, quickly went into MBA. Yeah. But I know, because I've known you for a while, you did Toastmasters, and yeah. you, you are a very good presenter. You like to speak. You're good at speaking. Have, have you always had that capability? <laughs> no. Like, I'm serious. I can't no, remember. Well, so, you know, it's, I'm laughing because um, I remember when I was young, I was in my 20s, and uh, we had in our church uh, a Sunday school called Adult Bible Fellowships, okay? And I was asked to uh, give a couple of lessons. And I remember literally standing up. This, we had transparencies. Remember transparencies? Yeah. You put them on a machine. The overhead projector. Made little overhead projectors and stuff, yeah. right? I remember standing up saying a few words as my vision began to tunnel and everything began to get dark and sitting back down and putting my head between my legs. So the short answer would be no. Are you seriously? <laughs> I'm absolutely serious, John. It's like everything closed in around yep. you. I'm starting to black out. Yep. Wow. Yeah, so I think it's like many things. You know, you have to decide, is this something I want to do? For me, Toastmasters was very, very helpful. It's practice. You know, I think as George Bernard Shaw said, uh, learning to speak is like learning to ride a bicycle. You continue to make a fool of yourself until you get used to it. I love it. <laughs> well, you know, Seth Godin has a whole thing about 
writer's block. Yeah. He says, you know, there's no such thing as speaker's block. We don't wake up every day and go, dang, I got speaker's block today. I don't know what I'm going to say. Sometimes maybe we should. Sometimes we should. Absolutely, 100% agree. Mm. But uh, yeah, so you get better speaking in public by speaking in yeah. public. Practice. But let me ask you the key question. After you put your head between your legs, did you soldier on or were you done for the day? I got back up. Good yeah. for you. We got through it. Yeah. And Pretty embarrassed. I'll bet. Yeah, but I got through it. But everybody else has been through it too. I think everybody identifies with that. Most everybody. So you haven't always been good at it. You haven't always been comfortable with it. If you were to give a a technical, a young technical professional, or anybody, mm -hmm. a young person. First of all, how important do you think communication is to advancing one's career? And if you were to give them some advice on improving communication, what would it be? How, how would you say it? Yeah, well, the communication is absolutely uh, key to it. I mean, I think the part that we think about a lot is the public speaking, the written word, and all those are, I don't mean to diminish those even a little bit, but I think the part we don't think about as much is listening and paying attention. Um, you know, I, I've never had any formal mentors, but I've had a lot of people who mentored me um, because they were kind, they didn't maybe take a lot of time, but I think also they knew I was paying attention and I was trying to learn from them. So that's been tremendously helpful. So I would say be a learner, uh, be somebody who's teachable, listen a lot. Yes, build your, your outbound communication skills. You know, yeah, that's good, outbound. Get, get like the that. written word, you know, do the public speaking. That's always really helpful. But you know, John, the, the most brilliant conversationalists we know are the ones who listen to us. Absolutely. What did you just say? <laughs> just kidding. Kind of. No, I am. <laughs> um, no, that's really good. Uh, communication is so, is so key. I had a very interesting, well, I, this person, I don't know who they are, but nobody else. I had a very interesting email uh, in advance of the podcast saying, hey, hope everything is okay. Okay, pleasantries aside, where's your podcast and when can I start listening to it? And I, so I told them, well, we still got to upload it, blah, blah, blah. And... And so we, we correspond a little bit, and, and he said, you know, we're a company of introverts. I thought it was good self-awareness. Yeah. It's a really good company, and he's a guy I really respect a lot. He said, I'm an introvert, and our company is kind of introverted. A podcast would never happen organically, mm -hmm. but I'll listen to every single one you have. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, that's really good. And I think that's we could take this... We won't, but we could go down a whole other path about introverts and extroverts. Yeah. I see that as kind of that balancer, too. And I know as an extrovert, I want introvert team members on my team because they're going to usually be fastidious and thoughtful and careful. Yeah. And I'm flying at about 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 feet. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, you got to pull me to get me down into the details. Again, I think it's that diversity on our team because right. we need somebody who sees the vision, who can communicate it, who can rally the troops. But we need those people quietly thinking about what was said and saying, right. have you thought about it from this standpoint? Exactly. That's really important. Yeah, 100% agree. So, well, we could go down a lot of different paths. Um, it's interesting. You, you already touched on the mentor. So you never really had a single mentor or even a variety of formal mentors, but you've been mentored by different things you've experienced and done. Yeah, you know, I remember my very first job, I was working in manufacturing and I had actually some, I had to work foreman, night shift, swing shift and so forth. And we had a, uh, a fellow who was in charge of the operation. And sometimes on the night shift, he'd say, Dan, let's go for a walk. And we just walk out in the tank farm and, he would talk to me how he was trying to deal with this pretty fiery union and so forth. But yeah, that sort of thing was helpful. Um, I had people who um, I would just watch. I had this brilliant Dutch businessman I worked with. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever worked with a Dutch before, but not to generalize. But, you know, you don't have to leave a meeting saying, I wonder what he was really thinking. Exactly. Right. Which I love. Very it's direct. specific. It's clear. Very clear. But, you know, he would say things like, after a two or three times in a meeting, 
when people were having a hard time reaching a decision, he would say something like, what will we know in three months that we don't already know? Oh my gosh. You know, and there's those little pearls of wisdom. That is awesome. That's the kind of maybe informal mentoring that was very helpful for me. You know what? That is a great question. Yeah. That is a question that we're asking more and more. Like, we don't need more time. We just need to decide. Right. Is there literally, legitimately something in a week or two weeks or a month? Like, is there research we need to do or Q&A, like to your point, that we need to do that will inform us? Or are we just kicking the can down the road? Right. Let's yep. make a decision. Yeah. Even make a decision to make a decision. That's right. Exactly. So paralysis. By analysis. Yeah. Or <laughs> paralysis because you haven't even done the analysis. Yeah. But that's I right. find uh, I was in a situation recently with a person, and, and they said, "Man, I hope I didn't make a rash decision," because the the decision just it just came, and I said. You know what, I've been watching you. You've been researching for weeks at depth. Nothing has been working. You've been probing, trying to go through different doors. And when you walked into this environment, it all fell into place. But it's not because you made a rash decision. It's because you were prepared. It'd be like walking onto a battlefield after studying all the logistics or flying over targets after you've studied all the map. That's right. That, quote, intuition, it kicks in. But a lot of times I think we know the answer within five or ten seconds, and then we we rationalize ourselves out of it. And it's good to rationalize ourselves out of it if we're just being flippantly spontaneous. Mm -hmm. But most people, the more experience they get, the more they intuitively know what to do. Exactly. Yeah, a lot of these have become, as you get older, one of the few advantages is you've seen certain patterns over time. I think the thing that we have to be careful about, especially if we rise up in an organization and are more senior, is not to get overconfident. And I've seen that happen too. So I think we need to be in a position where we continue to make it really, really safe for those around us to say, "Well, Mm -hmm. well, wait a minute, Adams, let's think about this. I like that. As long as we put ourselves in that position, I think a lot of our intuition can be very effective. Yeah, no, that's good. So, tagging on to that, um, I find it one of the things that's unique about you that a lot of folks may identify with, especially younger folks or people in middle management right now. You spent 29, I thought it was 25, but you spent 29 years at a corporation, Fortune, publicly traded corporation. Yep. And then you started your own business, which you've had for like 15 years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so number one, what advice would you give somebody who feels stuck in a corporate biz, mm-hmm. like in terms of providing the value and yeah. helping make the boss look good? Yeah. Any advice there? Because you did it successfully. Yeah. You know, it's, I think I mean, this is going to sound canned because you hear this so much. But you really need to find what it is you really enjoy doing. We just spend so much time doing something at work. Let's make sure we enjoy that. A lot of people, they'll find that in a corporation, and they'll be fine. But they need to keep looking until they find it. Don't, don't satisfy. Don't say, well, I only have 10 more years, and I'll retire. I'll slog through this. Find is whatever it is you enjoy. And if it's not in that corporation, we live in an age like never before where you, you have to be careful, you have to think it through, especially if you have a family and others to think about. But there are so many options in front of us. You just see entrepreneurs springing up all over. So I would say this, examine, is there something inside my corporation where I can feel like I'm really contributing, I continue to learn, I just enjoy this, and I'll continue to do that. If so, stay where you're at. If it's something where you say, I just don't see that happening. There's something I want to do and I'm not going to be able to do it here. Then start that path to clear away. Don't do what I did, which is, which is decide in a few months you're going Please to do this. Please fire me. Right, exactly. Instead, start laying the groundwork. Let's say you decide I want to become a consultant, okay, or who knows what. 
But you know what you want to start doing is start going and speaking at a lot of trade associations and networking and get out there and share what you know and help other people and build that. And then when you're ready, the, the, the ground, the seeds have been planted. Hmm. What do you think about, as a business owner, the guy who started it all? Did anything in corporate life prepare you for that? I know, I know certainly not yeah. all of it. No. But any nuggets there, or is it just too broad of a question? No, it's a good question. You know, there's this saying that an entrepreneur is somebody who stops working eight hours a day for a company so he can start working 16 hours a day for himself. And half the pay. Yeah, exactly. And so as much as I absolutely enjoy and I'm so glad I started this, I'm always very careful not to say, oh, you should do this. Yeah. I think if somebody's going to do this, they have to be prepared mentally for putting a lot of work in it. There's a lot of competition out there. You don't know how much you're going to work. I was personally pretty happy that our daughters were out of the house. I don't think I would have done a good job of managing myself, the balance between work and yeah, family I life. I know I didn't. Well, it's hard to do. So I, I would not be at all flippant about saying, get out of the corporate world and go do this. But with proper preparation, you know what you're getting into, it can be very rewarding. Don't you think that if you make, like, if you do have that preparation, if you start networking, you start getting your name out, whether you're doing something on the side that's completely different or whether it's still in your vocational lane, you, you can kind of tell when it's starting to resonate with people, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in fact, I could tell. I used to do a lot of PowerPoint presentations and um, I would show them to my boss. I'd give them the PowerPoint slides, you know? And then one day, this is like maybe a couple years later, a fairly high senior executive was looking at something I brought to him. He goes, Adams, your stuff is looking more and more like your boss's all the time. He's really rubbing off on you. And literally, John, it wasn't until I was driving home that I thought, wait a minute, my butt doesn't know, even know how to open PowerPoint. So apparently my stuff was getting a lot of use. I just wasn't yeah, getting credit for it. That makes it tough. Yeah, and that's, that might be one reason. If you feel like you're creating something of value, it's not about getting credit, but it's do you really feel like you have the control over how this is applied and used? And that can be frustrating. That can drive people outside of a company yeah, if absolutely. others don't get it. Yeah, I mean, bosses need to really work to give credit to their staff. Yeah. They, it, you get enough, I mean, you get a lot of crap, but you, you really get enough credit by having your name on the door. Yeah, getting credit and also letting them blossom and take it all the way. Sometimes right. a corporation, you have this great idea, but the corporation will only let you take it so far. That's not always true, but, but ask yourself, can this idea of mine go as far as I want to go in this environment? It's a, it's a good question to check. Yeah, no, you're, that is. There's a bunch of other tracks I could take there. Um, I got a quick question about training. Yeah. We talk about training here a lot. Mm -hmm. In your experience, you interface with a lot of companies, big and small. Do you think companies do training well or poorly, or is it just everything in between? Well, there's quite a range. I think the vast majority of companies could do a lot better job than they do. Um, it's, it's a little bit too much slapdash for them. Yeah. It's not really, they don't tie it to their strategy. Here's where we we're going. We have the same issue a lot of times. Yeah. And, uh, and I think part of the problem, I think a lot of executives say, I know it's something we should do, but they just don't get too fired up about it. They don't understand how powerful it can be if there's the right training and it's implemented and it's, it's, in a, it's aligned with the strategy. strategy. Totally. Yeah, exactly. That is totally true. I know for my own, partly because I was in an emerging field, but partly because I don't think, I think companies, mine included, we talk a lot about training. Yeah. But I, at the three other places I worked, I was never formally trained. Yeah. Just, well, here's an example. Here's an example. Here, yeah, okay. Uh, can I have a mentor? There is no mentor. Right. It's up to you. So, yeah. Um, I, I, 
How much do you think is the responsibility, well, maybe that's a dumb question, how much is the responsibility of the individual and how much is the responsibility of the company? So I think the company needs to set the environment for it, the encouragement, saying this is really important. You know, every time I had a performance review or I gave one, I asked two fundamental questions. Did I contribute and did I learn? So did I do something that really helped the business, but I, did I also build my capabilities and move yeah. forward? I mean, if the person today who isn't constantly building their toolbox of capabilities is doing themselves a, a great disservice. Well, you have to have portable skills today. I mean, if, yeah. when, when I st this may date myself a little bit, but in the late 70s and early 80s, we hadn't started going through these massive reduction of forces. Companies that we worked for had been around for over 100 years, you know, and there was no, we didn't know that we we're going to be going through this great churn. No. Well, we've, we should have figured it out by now, right? Right. That nothing is safe. And believe me, I, I have contact with thousands of B2B professionals through our training, and some of the absolute best and brightest are being laid off all the time. I okay. Know. And that's just a fact. But the ones who are really sharp are saying to themselves, I need to build my personal capability so I am ready whenever that time happens. Yeah. And some do, and some, they just put their nose to the grindstone and just keep doing the same thing over and over again. And it's very sad when that happens. Yeah. No, that's... Yeah, there's a... I got a lot of other thoughts and comments about that, but... The, there's another aspect of it too. Of course, you, you're a fan of Stephen Covey, and um, you know he talked about we can work on production, getting things done, results, and we can work on productive capabilities, mm -hmm. basic capabilities. If you look at most businesses today, and look at the balance between how much executive time is being spent on results versus how much on capabilities. I would say for most companies, it's out of balance, very heavy on the results. Yeah, but we can't right. ignore the results, we know that. Right. But the things we do to build capabilities will dramatically impact those results in years to come. I think every company has a defined amount of resource, let's say cash. Yeah. You know, human, human potential and capital, cash, time, and Jeez, driving to results is extremely important. You gotta meet your results. If you're not meeting results, you tend to spend more time on results. Yeah. But it, uh, whether, you've, whether you have a ton of gross margin or whether you have a little gross margin, I think it needs to be spent in a very specific manner. What I find a lot of times is with technical professionals is we're often enamored with new, new tools, new processes, like new software. Mm -hmm. But the customer doesn't care. Mm -mm. They just want an end product that has value to them, that's simple or easy to work with or whatever. So to your point, you know, if training is connected to, and, and this is possible, if training is connected to results, yeah. which is connected to the market, yes. which is connected to improved skills, then you're innovating as you're going forward that's where that whole alignment comes in. That's right, exactly right. And you know, some of it's what we see as formal training, and I think some of it is the environment also. Uh, McKnight was, I think, the first president of 3M, and he had this wonderful saying. He said, if you put fences around people, you get sheep. Mm -hmm. And you know, at 3M, they have this culture where people can take you know, 15% of their time and work on whatever they want, there's, I, I benchmarked them back in the mid-90s, and they had pots of $50,000 that you could apply for. That's a lot of money back then. Like so, an internal research group. Internal. Like, I got this cool idea. I want to do some lab work, or I want to go and interview customers. Wow. Here's the pot of money. And they weren't putting fences around people. So wow. you take that environment, I'm sure it applied to learning new skills and so forth. That's when exciting things happen, I think. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I think I don't think any of us who run companies do a good enough job of allocating training monies or training time. 
but I think we can, I think there's improvement on both spaces. We've been, obviously we've been thinking about this a lot. Um, and we're working on one particular one right now where the, the new capability is aligned with improved process and technology. Mm-hmm. It's revenue based. So in other words, we actually already have some of those competencies and we're selling into that. And it's aligned with customer training and advancement who are saying, we're going this direction mm-hmm. and we hope you can go with us. Yeah. So if, hey, we can become leader and now be more competent than some of our customers, then they're gonna go, well, we don't have to build it to that level, we can go out. Now, of course, then it has to be monetized correctly. Sure. But um, yeah, that's a beautiful thing. So we've kind of beat up some of that. Um, I got a few more questions for you, if that's okay. Um, Outside of business. Yeah. what do you like to do in your free time? Well, I, I love to get outdoors. In fact, in a couple more days, I'll be backpacking in the high Sierras out in California. So I love to do that, the canoeing, uh, running, anything I can do to get outside, a biking. That to me is very relaxing. Um, in a few more months, we'll be up to 10 grandchildren. So I love to spend time with the grandkids. That's, wow. that's a real treat for me. Wow. We could do a whole podcast on backpacking in the high Sierras. Yeah, it's beautiful. And spending time with grandchildren. It's really important. For sure. They need us. And actually, I think we need them too. Absolutely. My granddaughter said the other day, I had to run over and pick up my daughter. She was following me to the tire store. And my granddaughter said, Papa, you lost your hair. And I went... Oh no, where is it? <laughs> I, I didn't know that. Oh, she just laughed. That's she goes, I think it's on the floor. I said, honey, it's on a lot of floors over a long period of time. I guarantee it. Then I looked at her, I said, well, I think it's on your head. She said, no. I said, oh yeah. So now we're playing through this whole thing. So, it's great. Yeah, it took her, took her almost five years to just to discover I was To notice. Bald. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't notice, John. But she was bald when she was born, and now she has hair, and I had hair, and I, so... It I'm, all balances I'm out. making her think. <laughs> yeah, but she said, you, you lost your hair. I think it's on the floor. Thanks for that. <laughs> really appreciate <laughs> they that. They keep us humble. Yeah, they sure do. So where are you going in the... Is it just the high Sierras? You're going yeah. to a particular park? It's a place called King's Canyon. We've already hit... Um, the High Sierra Trail and Yosemite. It's all in that Sierra Nevada mountain range in California. California. Yeah, out Mount Whitney, that whole area there. It's beautiful. So you'll be above 12, you'll be at 12,000 feet? We'll just be about 12,000 this time, yeah. Yeah, just 12,000. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. So you'll go from sea level to a mile high first day, right? Yeah, we'll be over a mile the first day and then we'll put quite a few, we'll put another 7,000 feet on next couple days, so... Should be good, clean fun. It should be good, clean fun. Um, what do you do to keep your mindset? You're like, you're a very positive person. You've had a profound impact on me on positivity. You have a lot of joy. Um, you have a lot of kindness. But you know, you always have that positive outlook. Um, obviously, that's important to you. Do you? Is there anything in particular you do to keep that positive mindset or um, continue to drive you in that way? Well, you know, the, uh, the, the good book says to, uh, that we should be thinking about things that are true, that are noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy. And so I don't do a, a good job of this all the time, but I try to focus on those things. You know, I was just noticing some things uh, on the internet even today it's very easy to get drawn into political debates and other things. And, you know, some of that, it's good to keep in touch with it. But I think some of it can get a little dangerous. I think we can get sucked into, you know, a certain, maybe a radio broadcast or a certain point of view. It can get very negative. It's beyond being informed. and it gets Exactly. Well, news isn't news anymore in many ways. It's more 
um, people saying, here's my point of view, I'll call it news. But, you know, I mean, that's just part of it. That's a, maybe even a, a small part of the news. But I think being a little bit careful about what we allow into our minds is good. I think this... Somebody yeah. said the other day that most people on the planet, uh, their self-talk, they tell themselves over a thousand things a day yeah. as to why they're not worthy, why they're not good enough, why they don't measure up in some way, consciously or subconsciously. Yeah. I think that's really true. It's, I think so. So there's a balance there in being humble, but doing healthy things, mentally, physically, emotionally. Right. Some people's routine is to not have a routine. Other people's routine is to have a strict routine. Do you find routine helps you daily, like to stay in a certain mindset? Or is it more organic for you, just kind of, how is it more fluid? How do you approach that? Yeah, I, I think, and I think this is probably not a right or wrong here. I think we're all different. But for me, a certain level of routine is very helpful. Um, to me, exercise really helps a lot, you know. Uh, so there's a wonderful book called Younger Next Year about as you get a little bit older, how you exercise and stay in shape. And that, that affects us mentally as well, what we eat, what we read. Um, read so you're Bible. trying to do good inputs. Yeah, those things, those inputs really matter. And then I think also, you know, we, research shows that as we get tired, as the day wears on, mm -hmm. um, we're less able to make really good decisions. Mm -hmm. And um, the resistance goes down, impulse control goes down and so forth. Totally. Yeah, and so that's where I think we have to be a little bit careful too. We could easily, you know, waste four hours an evening just watching twaddle, you know? Right. So I, I think for me, it's how do I want to spend that time? What do I want to read? What do I want to be exposed to? Um, so it's it, intentional. It, it, for me, it has to be. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt about it. A couple more quick things. Um, have there been any observations with the businesses you interface with? Any observations on how people are managing with COVID-19 productivity? improve, de decrease, um, I, that's, that's just a very broad question, but yeah. we know we're all dealing with COVID right now. There's been a lot of uh, shakeout, and, you know, businesses now like ours, yours operating. Any kind of yeah. nuggets there that you've kind of observed? Yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, it's, it's encouraging. I'm um, maybe a little bit impressed with the adaptability of people. You know, what's been interesting, the most people I talk to, as they've moved into their homes and done work, they've figured out how to be very effective, be very productive. They've gotten a lot done. We've learned how to do a lot of what we call virtual, VOC is voice of customer, which is kind of shorthand for interviewing. So we've been promoting virtual VOC where people do web conferencing. I think what's been interesting is I think there have been some business leaders who maybe assumed their people had to come into work to be productive, yeah. who are getting surprised that, no, they really can be very productive if you have the right people. What we found is it depends on the person somewhat, but a lot of it depends on the position. Yeah. Some of it certainly depends on the environment, whether you've got little kids or not, a designated office space or not, you're in a home or an apartment. Yep. But most of the project managers are, please let me come back to the office. Yes. Most of the folks doing... You know, a lot of deep work at detail are like, I don't really need to come back. I'm saving two hours a day. In fact, I'm working more now than I worked before. That's right. But I think it's fascinating with your business, like you would expect, like with strategic coach or other entrepreneurial think tanks or how much of your work was based on travel and presentation. You've really had to pivot and completely change your model. I mean, you were traveling. You guys are conducting live on-site clinics, and now you've flipped it. It's, it's all virtual, right? It's all virtual now. It has to be, and it affected our business model in some uh, big, big ways. We had to change, I won't go into details, but that simple change of doing virtual workshops instead of physical led to many other changes. So our entire business model pivoted. But here's the cool part. When we were 
in the downturn of you know 2009, 2010, we took that time to retool. We actually teamed up with one of our clients, DuPont, and we created all this e-learning, and 25 of the actors were DuPont employees. Mm. So here was a really tough time, but we used it to retool. So now we're in another tough time, but we've taken that opportunity to retool, and I am so pleased. I mean, I don't. I wish we could take away the pandemic and all the suffering. Yeah. But in terms of our business model, we're going to come out of this a lot faster and better. So we were having a virtual meeting the other day, and I said, guys, we're we're going to come out of this. We're going to accelerate out of this and leave skid marks because we have a new That's business right. model. So I think there's a lesson there too. When you're in tough times, can you kind of reevaluate and think about where you're going and maybe make some changes? That's fantastic. I know the word pivot is overused too. A lot of people will be like, ah, John, don't use the word pivot. <laughs> but you've really had to be nimble and move quickly. That's yeah. a good message for a lot of other businesses. The one mistake I don't want businesses to make is the mistake, you know, that people in negative environments or even captives make sometimes like, well, I'm sure this will change tomorrow. I'm sure this will change. If you, you know, this is our reality right now until it's not. Right. If we have some fictitious idea of when we think it's going to get better, we're going to lose hope. If we say, I want to thrive and have the best possible mindset, I can, while I'm in the midst of this environment, take it day by day and move forward. I, I think that's a more hopeful outcome. I think so too. And the lesson for me is, I'm pleased that our team did this change, but it probably would have been even more noble if I would have thought about how to change before we had Of course, <laughs> of course. All of us feel that way. Yeah. Necessity is mother of invention. Um, you wrote a book. What's the name of the book? Yeah, it is New Product Blueprinting. How can we get that book? Yeah, it's out on Amazon and uh, Kindle and hardcover. And so you just go to Amazon type in new product blueprinting? Yeah, it's the kind of book that once you put it down, you just can't pick it up, John. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So um, our guest is Dan Adams, president of Advanced Industrial Marketing, founder and creator, right? Yes, indeed. Founder and creator, chief pain bearer. <laughs> um, and you've got a book, so we can get that book. Uh, AIM is on Twitter, right? Mm -hmm. It is. It's at AIM Institute. Mm -hmm. That's okay. right. So check it out on Twitter. You have a LinkedIn platform. We do. Individually and as a company, right? Mm -hmm. That's and right. Your LinkedIn, we can just type in Dan Adams, Daniel? Dan Adams will do it. Mm -hmm. Dan Adams, okay. Dan Adams, AIM. Um, any other social media that people could search out there for AIM, Facebook or Instagram? That's, those are really the two main ones. Tw Twitter LinkedIn, and LinkedIn. Twitter. Mm -hmm. And you are mainly on LinkedIn. Yeah, that's the big one. Um, okay, good. So look up Dan there. Uh, well, you know, I'm sure I could go on and on and bore you and our constituents more than uh, some maybe already. But we're going to put it in now to the first podcast. I want to thank everybody for listening. Thanks to our outstanding engineer, Josh, social media manager extraordinaire. Thanks to you, Dan, for taking time out of your schedule. It's been a pleasure, John. Thanks for having me over. Me too. Thank you. And we'll catch you next time.